0: Welcome to Tripping Over the Barrel, a series that highlights the unique personalities within the oil and gas industry and the stories they have to share with your hosts and lead storytellers, Tilo and Dr.
1: Funkenstein. We got the S O R W O S H Sehun,
0: or let's just call him Rouge. How about that? All right, we'll
1: just call him Rouge. We'll just call him Rouge. Zarouche Sehun. My guy, a new friend, an executive over at Quorum, making the rounds on some of the digital Wildcatters podcasts and, and somebody who I'm looking forward to hanging out with at the Quorum Connections event in Vegas here in a couple weeks. So we're not here to talk about Quorum, though. We're here to talk about Roosh. I <laughs> get, not, I hold get, hold uh, on, hold uh, on.
0: If you, if you plan a user conference in Las Vegas, you've got to have a, a, a plan in place like, okay, all these guys are gonna show up and only half of them are ever gonna make it to any of the meetings. What what's the plan there?
2: Yeah, content. Content. It's gotta be purposeful, meaningful content where where you can do both. There's plenty of time to play and and, and plenty of time, I think, to participate in uh in, in meaningful sessions. And that means quorum's not doing all the presenting because quorum presenting is boring, right? It's it's industry speakers and and customers that uh you know have, have important things to say to their their peers.
0: I remember SPE had their conference there one year, years and years ago. And I talked to someone from SPE and I don't know if this is their official statement, but they basically said, yeah, we're not ever doing that again. (laughs) You know, (laughs) 12,000 people show up and you got 2000 people on the floor, show floor, you know?
2: Yeah. Yeah. No, look, we've had a lot of luck, I think, uh, you know, and I don't mean to jump right into that. uh, But but we've, you know, I think had a good a good, you know, uh, mixture of both content. You know, whether it's whether it's actual end users talking about products and what they'd like to see them and how they'd like to see them evolve or executives talking about industry trends that are important to them and hearing from their peers on how they're thinking about certain things. Like we've had a great, great mix of both content and fun. You're in Vegas. You know, people want to do fun things, go to shows. I mean, there's so many different options in Vegas now from from airplanes to golf to race cars to, you know, you, you name it. There's there's a lot of fun to do. You got to make time for both. The Raiders. The Raiders, yeah, good point.
1: Uh, Yeah, Pats are playing out there this year. Josh McDaniels is the coach. We're talking about maybe a group trip, bunch of uh, old New England guys go out to Vegas for the weekend and go to that Dark Star or whatever they call it, that spaceship that they got (laughs) out of a stadium. Um, Have you guys done the Quorum Conference in Vegas uh, traditionally? Is this this what you do?
2: Yeah, look, historically we've been been, uh, really all over, honestly. It's just that at some point the conference became so big um, that, that the easiest place from a, you know, kind of hosting the, the number of people that we're hosting from a logistics standpoint, et cetera. It's just the easiest place to do it was Vegas. And so we have, uh, you know, we used to go like Vegas one year, then it'd be like Nashville, then San Diego, then San Antonio, and, and then back to Vegas. And every time we go to Vegas, the customers kept saying, go back to Vegas next year. Go back to Vegas. Yeah. Next year. So, uh, yeah.
0: That, that makes sense. Okay, we we skipped some of our normal formalities with the, uh, hey, tell us about Roosh, you know, background, how did you get into the business and so on. So let's go through a little bio on on you, if you can kind of put it in your own words, and then I'm, I'm sure Jeremy will jump in with uh, some tidbits.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, look, uh, I love that we jumped right into it. First of all, I should say thanks for, for having me and I appreciate nice. the, the time this morning. I gotta admit, uh, you know, you guys scheduled this for April Fool's Day, so I figured yeah, we maybe we'd show up and and I'd be the only one here. And you guys were like, "Yeah, right, I'm not interested." I thought, uh,
0: we sent you the link a little late, so I might have felt like that. I
2: was like, "Yeah, I I knew this wasn't gonna happen." Uh, no, yeah. So um, thanks for having me. Glad to glad to be here and excited to get to know you guys as well. Look, my my I guess background quick story. Um, You know, I'm the son of of, uh, Iranian immigrants that fled uh, religious persecution to come to the U.S. uh, around the time of the revolution. Uh, You know, I I was born abroad, but but came to the U.S. by the time I was two, uh, made it to Texas before I was five. You know, spent my elementary, middle and high school really in the same sort of uh, school path and the same group of kids uh, in, in Round Rock, Texas, right outside of Austin uh live in Austin today, still close friends with a lot of those those guys and girls that I grew up with. Uh and and yeah, I mean that's sort of that's sort of uh you know how I think I ended up in in Texas. I love this place. I don't, you know, I I lived in, in Houston for a while, have lived in, in other cities, New York, Chicago, uh, and could not wait to get back to to Austin. I've been back in Austin for about 10 years uh in, you know, my extended family you know, my, my, my mom, my brother, sister, you know, aunts, so on and so forth. Cousins all all live here. And so, uh, yeah, this is, this is home.
1: So I want to, I want to get into, so you grew up in Texas and went to high school there, tight knit community, round rock, just outside of Austin. And then you went to Columbia, right? New York city. What, um, great school, obviously Ivy league. What prompted you to go there best school you went to you wanted to go to the northeast it was a a priority in your family to go to the best school you got into like what what was it uh
2: yeah you know no i had no idea i was going to go to columbia um i played soccer growing up uh soccer was really the only thing i cared about uh and and to my parents you know they didn't really care about the soccer they cared about you know good grades and academics and and coming from a persian family it was like you know you're either going to be a doctor or an engineer or a lawyer. And, and uh, I wasn't really sort of interested in any of those, although I thought, okay, maybe I'd be a doctor, but for all the wrong reasons. And so I played soccer and ultimately it wasn't until late in high school where, uh, you know, started getting recruited by, by Columbia. Um, I was looking at a handful of other schools across the country. The, the problem with soccer in Texas is there's only one D one school in, in Texas, it's SMU. And so if I wanted to play D1 in uh, SMU, uh, unfortunately, wasn't interested. And so I was looking looking across the country. Uh, and, and then Columbia came calling, you know, and I was like, how, you know, my parents were like, well, you, you need to take that, you know, seriously. Uh, and, and I was like, okay, went on a visit to, to the campus, uh, did an official visit, uh, fell in love immediately with, with the city, the school. The players, the teammates there, you know, that were going to be there the following year. I had a I had a, you know, just an incredible uh, recruiting visit. And I came back home and and that was it. Told my parents that, that that's where I was going to go. And they were they were happy because, you know, I was looking at, at other schools really for the for the soccer first. And and this was really more of a a, a joint decision.
0: So Ivy League athletics. I mean, I was. I don't brag, but I was being recruited by one of the Ivy League schools for football back in the day. Well, look at I, you, I didn't, des- I didn't deserve to be, but it was anyway. <laughs> um, but you know, they they didn't have athletic scholarships, and so I was going to have. You know, they they have other ways of finding you know help for you and everything, but that's that's right where I turned off. Yeah, okay, well, never mind. If you're not paying, yeah. if you're not going to yeah. pay for me to play. I'm I'm uh, I'm going to go somewhere else. But what what's it like ivy league athletics maybe compared to i don't know with with if you're, if you're into soccer like acc type of athletics
2: yeah um, well okay so so i guess you know i guess to to answer your first sort of question uh, for me man, ivy league's expensive right and my, my yeah. family we didn't grow up with we you know when my parents fled iran they had they had everything they were retired and they literally moved here with nothing and mm. started their lives over with a two year old uh, and so, like you know, money wasn't really a thing that we we had growing up, and so paying for school was not going to be an option. I was going to figure out how to do it myself, um, or or get some money. And so, look, you know, in the Ivy League, there's there's uh, you know grants that are provided that covered the majority of my four years there. That that would not have been something I would have chosen to do unless unless that was an option. Um, and so, you know, that's that's sort of how, not an athletic scholarship, but certainly the grants enabled me to be able to to go and play there for four years. Man. Uh, you know, Columbia's athletic fields are you know a good twenty-five minute bus ride away from campus. Oh, so really? They, wow. Yeah, because because Columbia is in in it's in the upper west side, right? Right on the sort of you know hundred. I mean, it's Harlem. And, it's and in Harlem, right? Uh, it could be considered Harlem. I think technically starts at one hundred twenty-fifth Street, but it's it's sort of a you know it's a blurred uh, area. I haven't actually been back in like a good five, six, seven years, uh, and I'm sure it's changed quite a bit. But true. Um, you know, it's it's uh it's yeah so so like the the schedule of a student athlete in the Ivy league i mean talk about a slap in the face like high school was a piece of cake for me you know getting good grades was not a hard thing i did you know well enough in in school had a good gpa the SATs were were you know i think i, I the math side of it was was a piece of cake I damn near aced the math side of the SAT and and then the verbal side maybe not so great um but but enough combined to to get into you know to to get into Columbia. but again like slap in the face academics freshman year. It's like, wait, what do you mean? Like you get to, you get to campus and, and soccer is the same season as football. So you're there before school starts, you're in preseason, you hit the full like practice every day, games kicking in, sometimes midweek games for soccer, right? And before I knew it, I was struggling academically, right? And so it was like, okay, I, I don't think I actually know how to like study. I don't think I actually know how to learn properly, uh, you know, uh, and so, so I had to sort of uh, one, you know, get some help. Uh, from from teammates who came from actually like I had teammates who came from backgrounds where their schools like their their high school was harder for them yeah. than Columbia like wow they were like oh man this is like yeah I have all the tools I have all the skills I need to to ace sort of what I'm doing here and that was a uh, not no offense to the to the you know the, the upbringing I had but it but you know in the schooling that I had it, you know it is just a different ballgame so I say that to say man, the, the, the schedule of a student athlete coming in at 18 years old, trying to balance school. And, you know, like, you know, you, you're, you're a competitor. It's the only reason you got into, you know, playing and playing in college. So you're going to put blood, sweat and tears into your, into your sport craft. Uh, it was, it was pretty intense. We were, we were competitive. Um, I thought, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to to play all four years. I started all four years. I think I think it was the second game of the season uh where I got some playing time and by the third game um I was I was starting and was fortunate to get that kind of playing time. But um I I think back to that schedule that I had to carry. And I think I think learning how to do that, like figuring out how to manage my time, how to be committed to both academics and and the thing that I love the most, which was was, you know, soccer, uh, you know, that that kind of I think set the path for me. For the rest of my life to be able to like if you can handle that sort of schedule and do well on both sides um you know you, that's a that's a that's a skill you can carry forward in, in anything you do
1: man this is there's a lot of relatable stuff here for for me having gone to brandeis which was very similar in terms of there were kids uh who went to high schools in in new york in new jersey in chicago that prepped them for that yes. and, and they were like They came in and they were in Spanish two, and they're immediately like, Oh, this is too easy. I need to go to Spanish three. Right. I'm like, Oh, man, I just took Spanish for four years and I need to be in Spanish one. Like, I'm not ready. You know, so just a different caliber of of student and education. And I've talked about this on this pod before, Tim, too. You realize, and I'm sure Sarush did too, like these guys have a great work ethic. They're smart, that all these things, like you got to step up your game just to to stay with them.
0: But, you know, like you, Roosh, I didn't have, I wasn't challenged. In high school, academically, eh, maybe one course here and there I'd have to put a little bit of effort into. But for the most part, I was able to, you know, put in minimal effort and get through, you know, and I, you know, did well on tests and everything. But the uh, when when I got to school, A&M, suddenly it was like, yeah, I got to go teach myself how to study because I just had no study skills. I did not know how to go do it. Yeah. You know, I just figured to sit in there, listen to a lecture, and remember the stuff, and take the test. But now everything changed. It wasn't until my junior year that I I was like, "Wait a minute! I now know what to do." And it's not that my grades were bad freshman year, sophomore year; it's just they kept improving once I got everything figured out. Had I gone to one of those prep schools, Jeremy, I think it would have been an easier transition.
2: Yeah, my grades were terrible. Uh my, my grades were terrible out of the gate. Like I was immediately trying to figure out how to catch up because I wasn't I wasn't used to that. You know, I was used to, to being, you know, top of the class and, and a top athlete. Like I, I wanted to do both, but uh like I said, you know, you then I, I chased my GPA for the next three years, making it get back up above a, a three oh by the time I graduated, but it wasn't you know, it wasn't easy, and and some of those guys that you're talking about, Jeremy, uh, were the ones that that helped me, right? Some of my my teammates uh, who who you know knew how to do it the right way were the ones that sort of said, "Look, no, this is how we're going to do it." Uh, certainly, there was still plenty of like, uh, you know, cramming uh, the night before, staying up all night, trying to trying to you know, uh, sit in the library with with you know dozens of other people who were chewing on sunflower seeds and drinking coke, trying to stay awake to get every last bit studying in before that next exam. But it's a little
0: bit different when you're doing that on the road too. uh, going, coming back from a, from a game or something.
2: Yeah. 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 uh, Yeah. We, we carrying your, your work and look back down, like there weren't laptops. Sounds like we're late nineties. It's the reality, right? It's like you carried your books and and notebooks and like taking notes and writing papers on (laughs) by hand. Like it was crazy.
1: Yeah. Laptops were $2,000 late nineties prices. So it sort of weeded out who had had laptops. Everybody else had desktops or worked at the, well, the library.
0: I, I remember the day when professors, when I started at A&M in 1988, we, they were talking about, you know, in five, 10 years from now, you're all going to be sitting here with computers. You're not going to be, you know, laptops. And I was like, wow. And, and you know, that it's not even, even now, you know, there's only, it's not everybody sitting there in front of a laptop in class. Now most of them probably do now or have tablets and things, but yeah it's funny how those predictions we still don't have hoverboards for God's sakes. I mean yeah, true I was gonna say
1: we were supposed to have flying cars by 2000 So yeah. much for that. Yeah, so I what was what was your major?
2: Uh yeah so I, I started in pre-med and that lasted a semester. Wow. Uh yeah you can't do both. Literally lasted a semester. I was like yeah this is not gonna work for me. And then I was confused for another year, like not sure what I wanted to do. I mean, I knew that I liked business. I was good at math. And and at Columbia, you know, the only real option there was economics. And so I ended up uh going the economics path and getting an economics degree.
1: And in New York City. So so there's a few things I wanna I didn't realize we were gonna talk so much Columbia, but whatever. It's where we are. Um yeah. one, the, the first thing is what what is it like going to college in a big city like that? You know, that was actually something I intentionally did not do because I was such a country bumpkin. Growing up and I wanted, I need a little space, right? I still need to be able to park a car. And I, I saw what it was like for the kids that went to Boston university where it's like literally right in the middle of a, of a city. Were there lots of distractions for you? Did you feel like it was, it was a positive being in the city because you got everything at your fingertips? What was it like going to college in
2: a huge city? Yeah, uh, man. So, so like the beautiful thing about New York city um, and I didn't know this going into it. I was just, I just jumped in, right. I just jumped in like great opportunity. Great school in New York city is amazing. Let's go. Um, and, and then like the, the things that I realized that I loved about it is like, everybody fits in. Like I just got done with high school in Texas where it's like, there's this click and that click. And like, are you in the popular kids or like, nobody gives it, like, no one cares yeah. in, in Columbia, New York city. Nobody cares. Everybody fits in. You got students from all over the world coming there and it's like, you know, a microcosm of New York City itself where it's a melting pot of all of that. Like that was one of the things immediately that I was like, man, I can just be myself. That's amazing, right? Um so like there was there was that aspect. I can't I don't know that I stepped foot off of campus for like two and a half years. Like so being in New York City meant nothing to me. I was really on on the Columbia's campus, um, you know, which is this beautiful, if you've never been there, it's a beautiful campus up on the, you know, again on the upper west side. Like some of the Ghostbuster films uh, were filmed on campus, where you see those the huge library with all the columns, and uh, even even inside some of those scenes are from inside the, the the Butler Library on the campus. But it's a beautiful campus, and we had everything we needed right there, right. So you don't need a car, right? You walk to everywhere you need to go. If you happen to need to go, you know, a handful of blocks, you could jump in the subway. Um, and and you, again, you had everything you needed right there on campus or within three or four blocks of campus, and so can't like, I can't claim that I experienced New York city until later when I realized like, man, I only got like a year here. I only got like a year and a half left in the city. I haven't, you know, haven't been down to, you know, wall street. I haven't been down like, you know, Times square statue of Liberty, like started doing some of those things. Uh, And again, some of my, some of my closest friends, uh, my my closest friends were, were from uh, Jersey and they were a couple of brothers that, that one was a year older than me, one a year younger than me and their family lived 30 minutes away across the GW bridge. Man, we spent a lot of time over at their house on Sundays, huge Italian family, um, you know, totally. big Sunday, big Sunday dinners. Uh, and so, you know, as as starving college athletes that were hungry all the time, I mean, we would go there to their house They'd come pick us up, drive us back to Fairlawn, yes. New Jersey, feed us and then like take us back with just trays and trays of food that would last <laughs> a whole week. Uh, so, everybody
1: yeah. eating it, people digging their hands in there at two in the morning, right?
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. Exactly.
0: <laughs> it is amazing how different everybody's college experience is. Just because yeah. you know, I I was at a town that was dominated by the university. If you went to uh Chipotle, everybody in line with you is a student yeah at the university. And everyone working behind the counter is a student at the university. So it's like you you don't escape it, you're just immersed. But I've been thinking in New York, you know, you go to a A pub, and there's nobody from Columbia University in there with you, or whoever you came in with. It'd be a very different experience.
2: It's interesting though, Tim. Like we we sort of had this this community, you know, like all the all the whether it was the bars or the restaurants or whatever around campus, they sir they were they were there for the the college campus, right? I mean, Columbia is a a, a three four thousand person undergrad or student undergrad, right? So it's not that many people, but all of the immediate restaurants that were in that area were were there. Uh, you know, so like it, 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 was actually very similar. I spent time at a and uh, A lot of my closest friends went to A&M, you know, you go, you go to whatever dance hall or bar and, and all of your friends are there. Uh, it was the same thing. It was yeah. the same thing. Okay. Now if you ventured 10 blocks away, now it's, now it's New York city. You're, you're nobody. Right. Um, but, but yeah.
1: Okay. So, so you graduate, it's, it's 2000 ish and you decided to go to Israel.
2: Right. <laughs> what, <laughs> yeah, talk right. about
1: that a little bit.
2: Yeah, um, man, I, uh, it, it, you know, it's interesting. I, I was probably one, eh, you know, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do. I got just got done playing soccer for four years. Uh, I felt like I wanted to be done with soccer. Uh, you know, I had this dream of being a professional soccer player as a kid. And, and uh, I was just done at 22 years old. I was done with that. And I wasn't ready to just to start working. And I had this opportunity to, to go serve at the Baha'i World Center in Haifa, Israel. Um, I had visited with my parents a couple of years prior, beautiful, I mean, beautiful, you know, see, town on the Mediterranean, um, just just beautiful. And and the idea there is like there's people from all over the world doing uh, various jobs or roles of, of service within the Baha'i World Center. So it's the administrative center of the Baha'i faith. I don't know if you guys have know what the Baha'i faith is or not, but but in short, it's an independent world religion mm-hmm. uh, with, with its, both its administrative center and spiritual center there in, in, in Haifa, um, or in Israel. And, and so I had a chance to go serve for a year and I figured, you know, like, I don't know what I want to do. Let me go, let me go, you know, uh, go there, have this experience. I love, I love traveling. I love, you know, going to new places, meeting people. Um, and so that's, that's kind of how that came to be.
1: Really, really neat. Do you have time to, I'm I'm still trying to figure out, I've never heard of (laughs)
0: Baha'i faith, but is it a, an offshoot of one of, uh, the other religions or what is, what is yeah.
2: it? Real short. Uh, it's not, it's an independent world religion, uh, about 150 years old. So it's like the latest of the, of the, of the world religions. The, the kind of fundamental beliefs in the Baha'i faith is that, uh, all the religions are one. They all come from the same God. Humankind is one, uh, all the eternal truths in all the religions, like, you know, treat your neighbor the way you want to be treated, uh, integrity. Uh, You know, all all of those things are are the same. The the commonalities in religion are all the same. No one, none of them teach us to hate, right? They all teach us to love. And so, the Baha'i faith believes in this idea of progressive revelation, which really just means that religion or spirituality is taught to us through God, through messengers, prophets um, that that are that come from time to time. Just as like students go to kindergarten, first grade, second grade, third grade, fourth grade, religion similar as humanity becomes more mature spiritually. God gives us more revelation and so that's the, that's the idea, but it's all from the same sort of you know uh, the same the same source. and I, I was raised in the Baha'i faith and it, it taught me a lot of really good principles. Again, I got to spend sort of this this moment between childhood and adulthood in Haifa, Israel, where I was really you know had a, a full year to sort of reflect on what that meant to me, like who I wanted to be, what what about the Baha'i faith was going to influence the rest of my life and how I was going to live my life. Um, you know, t- today, if I'm being totally honest, like, you know, we don't, uh, we're so busy with, uh, with, with the three boys. Um, and we have a fourth living with us as well. Like we're so busy with their schedules and, and all the things that we do that, that like to my core, I know I'm a Baha'i, but, but I don't like, we don't actually participate, you know, week in, week out in, in a lot of the activities that happen. So, um, yeah, I don't know if that. that, yeah, so that
0: we, yeah, we generally don't get religious on the show. I just wanted, I hadn't really, didn't know much about it. I thought that, But anyway, thanks for that. Kind of quick summary,
2: yeah. yeah.
1: Yep. So now that we're regaling your whole life tales, it's two thousand one now, right? Almost two thousand two. You've had this somewhat of a spiritual awakening. You dove in. You got the beautiful Mediterranean weather, food, all that stuff. Then what? You you came back to the U.S. Did you go back to Texas?
2: Um. Yeah. No. So the gosh, I'll give you the quickest version. I I was uh, I had not played soccer long enough where I absolutely missed it and thought I was missing an opportunity in my youth. To go put 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 you know put a full kind of effort into uh, a soccer career uh, that failed about six to eight months later I I went that's and got back I got fit I was training in Haifa with with a local team there came back to the states uh, my buddy was already playing in Germany um, real quick he's he's the first ever American head coach in the Bundesliga Pellegrino Matarazzo that's, that's cool um, he's he's there today he's a coach of, of Stuttgart. Um, he was playing in Germany, and his brother graduated the year after me, and the two of us started training together. And, and uh, again, I went back to Jersey and really kind of lived with them for a bit, got fit, played a bunch of games, got sent over to Germany for a handful of trials. Nothing worked out um, for me. Nothing worked out for me, and and so you know at that point I felt, look, I tried, like I put I put the full kind of effort into it. wasn't meant to be. Let's see what's next. Um, and and then nine eleven happened. I went to. Yeah. I actually went back to New York City thinking that that I'd, you know, follow kind of the investment banking path that a lot of my my friends had had followed. Sure. And then 9-11 happened, and there was no hiring whatsoever. Uh, and ended up finding a job through another one of my friends uh in Houston, Texas. Uh, and and that job was a cost accounting job at a manufacturing plant for U.S. Gypsum Company, which uh Sheet is one of their trade names, right? So they're the largest uh building products manufacturer in the us they have since been acquired by by knoff but i became an accountant for for two years i'm going to get to how i got to to quorum and oil and gas uh, in two seconds but i became an accountant for two years sort of uh was was done with that like i had you know learned what i needed to learn about sort of accounting was getting bored and, and and the opportunity showed up in their corporate office in chicago to be a part of a software implementation overhaul of everything back office to manufacturing to supply chain um it was like you know back in 2000 oh man i don't even know 2005ish um and and now nah, 2003 4 and and uh i moved to their corporate office i became uh, a teammate or a team member on this implementation like 60 million bucks oracle e business suite uh, you know, McKinsey, Bearing Point at the time had a bunch of consultancies in there, along with with thirty to forty people from from USG, and I that opened my eyes to one software and software implementations. Two, the biggest thing I took away, I was I was just shocked. Like I had been out of school for two three years at the time, and there was there was consultants coming in from Bearing Point um, and and the other consultancies who'd also been out of school for two or three years. But they were walking into U.S. Gypsum Company, designing our future, designing our processes, telling our directors best practices. And I was like, man, like, what have I been doing for two years while you guys have been out there? I went to Columbia, damn it. (laughs) Yeah, I I, I just just blew my mind that that in the same amount of time they had learned so much. And so, um, you know, I ended up at that point, I knew that I needed to go find I wanted to find. I'll you know, ship some company it was this massive organization, 15,000 employees, uh, so much red tape. I, I, you know, some of my mentors there that gave me opportunities are, are fantastic, but that was not the place for me. I wanted to work for a small company, wanted to make an impact. I wanted, you know, I wanted to be driven. I wanted results in my career quickly. Um, and so I was looking for a small company to go work for that was in consulting. And, uh, you know, through through friends, met, met Jason Webster at the time, who was yeah. at Forum. Like man, you sound like you should come work for Quorum. And I am like, what's you know what's Quorum? And uh and you know a few conversations later and a couple of interviews, uh, ended up ended up coming over to Quorum as a you know as basically a project manager, um and and went through a crash course and some sort of technical skills, learning how to build reports and do some some PL SQL in order to do data conversions. I was terrible at it, terrible. Uh, <laughs> Luckily, you know, luckily did enough work for a couple of customers not to get fired, and uh, and that sort of set the the path for uh, for for, you know, where I am now.
0: So then you you ramped up into the kind of the sales side of the business, but I may well, let me back up. So you obviously oil and gas was not what you were necessarily aiming at, and you were in pretty early at Quorum, but um, I, well, at least
2: yeah, two thousand
0: the, the Quorum that you joined does not look like the Quorum. Now, there's no doubt about that, but, uh, but you kind of went, you made the move from project management, project implementation over to
2: sales. What, yeah. what, what, what makes that move? Cause that's a, that's a, a different jump. Yeah, a lot happened. I mean, a lot happened uh, to meaning like, you know, this 2006 is when I started, I did, you know, project management sort of implementation services work for about two, three years and then I switched into our support organization. We were building our upstream practice, and so uh, I was asked to I was asked to to create the support organization. At that point, we are everybody did everything, like you know all the, the team members we had. You're like one day you go help a customer implement software, the next day you're taking a support call, the next day you're doing a demo for a potential new customer. So as we were growing, I, I had or the, moving furniture, yeah. or moving furniture, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah totally setting up Wi Fi, uh, whatever it might be for for a customer. Um, and, and so I had the fortune of sort of, you know, having these opportunities to, okay, let's build a support organization. How should it work? What are the best practices? Okay. Like learn how to do it, set up a team. And then it was like, okay, now we need a better kind of consulting services organization that just dedicated the upstream business. So then I went and, and, and did that for a minute and then we needed a pre-sales group. Right. So like I had a handful of people where we all knew, we know the domain really, really well. Like, so, but we don't have a a team dedicated to to pre sales or to you know call them solution engineers, right? Uh, solution architects, guys that come in know the business, talk to existing customers, but also demo and talk to potential customers. So I had I had the ability to set up that part of the organization um, and sort of create the beginning of that. And then uh, and then one day Perry and Lindsay were like, "Okay, you're going to be an account executive," and I was like, "What? What do you mean? Like, it's why good. are you
0: working? Fancy word for sales. You're doing
1: sales
2: now. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. And they're like, you're gonna, you know, you're gonna carry a quota, and here's some of your accounts. And I was like, man, yeah, sure, this is a good idea. I'm not like, <laughs> not not too sure. I really enjoyed doing demos. Like, I actually really enjoyed. Interesting. One of my favorite things is walking to a room full of people who don't know who in the world you are and are super skeptical. And you know, an hour later, walking out where where you've built a relationship, they appreciate that you come with some some expertise. Uh, and, and you've kind of opened their eyes to maybe a different way of doing, doing business or, or, or managing their business. And like, that's one of my, that was one of my favorite things. So I became an account executive where, where, uh, you know, now it's like, okay, you know, how do I take care of the customers that we have? How do I add a couple of customers, uh, did that for a year. And about the end of that year, uh, I, I did really, really well in that role, not because I'm good at sales, but because I think I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very sort of, uh, sincere in wanting to have strong relationships with people uh and and i i'm not gonna you know i'm not gonna do something that that isn't right for for them and and if i don't know then i'm gonna tell them that i don't know and and for those reasons i think you know was able to build trusting relationships where where you know ended up having a really good first year in that role and then this is this is like 2017 and and then some of the acquisitions started with with fielding and wellies and simultaneously, we were trying to take our our you know market dominant land solution that that everybody used right Chevron Exxon BP Conoco. We're like, okay, that's that's great. We love this customer base. It is the best land solution in the world. But why why can't we why can't we expand this to be for everybody? Why does it only have to be for the Exxons and BPs of the world? And so I I kind of worked on taking that product pre configured down market in conjunction with acquiring these companies and these cultures. Around you know fielding and wellies, where they had the startup culture and they had this culture of what I call customer success, where uh, the support model is entirely different. It's SaaS software, right? You you pay for a subscription and we take care of you, right? Um, and and that means you're not getting a you know a, a bill for a 15 minute phone call that you you know had to ask a question on how to log in or, or whatever it might be. Um, and and so I started building sort of that team with a couple of other folks uh, in, in building sort of a, a culture and a structure, uh, around that team. Again, not, not me personally, but, but me and a handful of other folks who, um, you know, kind of spearheaded that over the the last couple of years. And and then that just kind of led into, well, Hey, you you guys are killing it with selling this on-demand stuff, you know, uh, here's the next challenge and here's the next challenge. And before I know it, you know, now I'm, I'm running all of, of us, uh, sales for, for all of our products, right. Both under the, the kind of, you know, a now, now you know under the Quorum footprint, along with all of the Quorum Enterprise product, along with all of our our on demand um, SaaS solution. So I don't know.
0: You know, so you know, Jeremy. Had we stuck with Energy Navigator, we'd yeah. be working for Roosh now. I
2: know, you, do I You know, know that, or percent. or or I wouldn't have a job, and you guys would have taken <laughs> over. Yeah. Well, I'd be working for us.
1: Yeah.
0: Let me ask you that. What is it like? As Quorum Business Solutions is going from, I don't want to say a one product, but a small number of products to suddenly you're getting everything bolted on. You got all these startups joining up, some not so startups. I mean, Energy Navigator, which was part of Ocerna when you, you guys got together, that's not a startup. I mean, what's it like suddenly going from one, two, three products to 50? You know, what's that like yeah. from a sales department? How do you do that?
2: Yeah. Uh, gosh, I mean, my, my, my knee jerk reaction is it's amazing. Like, it's, it's amazing. Why? Because it's it's a chance for growth for all of us. It's like, what if I had to sell land software for my entire career? Like, how meaningful would that be? Right? But then it went from, you know, from land to, okay, back office accounting to, okay, what happens in the field? How does production get accounted for and captured? Right? Then how do you, how do you plan to develop a field? Then how do you manage the process of staying on budget as you're out there drilling a well? right? Like all of these things sort of expand your own domain expertise of what you know about the industry that we serve. And, you know, for a sales professional, like one, it can be, oh my God, I don't know which one to sell. Like, what do I go focus on? Or it can be, let me really be thoughtful and in, in, in thinking about, okay, who are my accounts? What are they doing? How do these products sort of, you know, what are the key value props behind these products? And do those marry to this moment that, that a customer is is doing whatever activity they're doing? It's challenging. You need you need support, right? You need a strong solutions team, pre-sales team. You need a strong marketing team. You need a strong products team. It's a team effort. Sales never going to do it by ourselves um, because the domain is so large and the expertise. I mean, you guys like I, I don't know, you know, AFE Nav and Val Nav and, and, and planning space and Entersight. And like, I don't know those products in and out. I have a very, very high level understanding of the, the business purpose they serve. Um, but, but again, it's a team effort. Then you bring the right folks in to have the conversations as you hear the customer complaining about some pain that they have, you know, you, you have to, you have to be trained to sort of hear what those are and have those conversations and listen, listen, listen. Um, and, and, you know, I think, yeah, from that standpoint, like we, like you're, you're talking to me on the, the first day of the new quarter. Uh, and we, uh, you know, usually I would probably have not gotten any sleep last night. Um, and and be erect this morning, and and in all reality, man, we just had one of the best quarters that that Quorum as a company combined right across all of these product sets that we we have had. And what I mean by that is, man, like the momentum's there. The market understands the value we bring to bear with both the breadth and the depth of solutions. I mean, our you know at this point. At this point, you know, there's, there's some new logos out there for us, but that's not the the core of where we're at. We're, we're taking care of our existing customers and then coming back and saying, look, yeah, you guys, guys have taken care of us, care of us in this area. You know, it's time to, to partner with you in this other area. That is what is, is boosting our business right now. And you know, that, that vote of confidence is the thing that makes me the the most proud of, of, you know, delivering the kind of results we just did in Q1.
1: That's amazing. So. Yeah, you guys have grown rapidly. Um, and, w- and one of the things that I've been impressed with by Quorum, let's call it over you know, the last five years, if you've been there for close to 15, you could probably split it up into three different segments. But over the last five years, really the um, exponential growth phase, can you talk about some of the challenges you have, whether it be egos or personalities or skill sets in bringing in some of these new people into the organization? Because I would think... You know, from, from the outside, oh, uh, there's an acquisition. Let's think about how the products fit. Great. You've got technical people that can help with that. How do the people fit? How do you navigate yeah. that when they had a culture, they thought they were great, maybe they even felt like they competed against you in some ways, and then all of a sudden, they're working for you. Well, yeah. How do you get people comfortable with that?
2: Uh, y- yeah, it, it, it's culture, and it's not thinking the culture that you have already as Quorum is the right culture. Right, it's it's being very open minded to to collaborating with these new parts of the company to become a new quorum together. Right, it's not about hey, you are now a part of Quorum, and now we're going to lead you this way and we're going to operate this way. I'm I'm here to tell you some of these acquisitions have been, um, just just momentous in changing the way we operated. Again, whether it's whether it's Wellies for me, Wellies is one of the big big ones that just changed the way we did uh, yeah. the way we sold and the way we operated internally. Uh, it, it set the groundwork for who we are right now today, the way we serve the upstream business, it's adopting the parts of their culture that make you better. Right. Um, and you can only do that if you come, if you come, you come to these conversations, with the demeanor of, of, of listening, right. It's like, it's a, you, you got to come together and say, Hey, we're going to do this together. It happens to be, you know, that, that a got merged or rolled up under quorum doesn't mean anything. Like, just because we acquired a company doesn't mean anything. We we have to do this together. And if we're not going to do it together, we're going to we're going to end up failing. But again, it takes it takes the trust of it takes time, right? Like, if I just think about my team, and some of the new team members that have all of a sudden are working for me instead of their former leaders, you know, um, like, I need to prove it to them. I can't I can't come into this into this relationship saying, hey, here's how we're going to do things. Now, I need to prove it to my new team members that want to trust them. The two, we're in it together. The three, I don't know all the answers. Like, you know, you're going to know things a lot better than I do, especially in the domain that, that you've been working on. Mm-hmm. And so it's it's that demeanor. Like you talked about ego, Jeremy. And and for me, man, like, you know, it's, it's a battle every day, but like, I try not to, there's, there's no ego in what we do. Like, it, again, I think maybe that's because I I grew up playing soccer and it's a team sport and, you know, you're worthless if your teammates aren't going to, you know, participate with you and deliver with you and fight with you. Um, and so, yeah, I think I think it's 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 a lot of those things that help create this this new vision. It doesn't have to be the vision that it was, you know, before. It has to be a new vision that you created together as as a result of of this new company and the new people.
1: Yeah, that's that's the right attitude, and and I think it it shares sheds some light into why you guys have been able to to integrate some of those acquisitions has to start at the at the top.
0: And Tim, I'm, I know I you have at,
1: to run relatively I, soon. So I, I look
0: at other companies that are struggling. Well, it's when you make the little acquisition, it's one thing. The big company gobbles the small thing. But when I got to think when Acerna came in, there's a point there where there's a real risk of this could fall apart. This could be where we're now just chasing revenue as opposed to really building something. And, uh, you know, I admire the, the attitude to be able to pull that together. I haven't heard anybody complaining or mass uh, ejections from the company, oh, people just taking like off. It. I think it's been, a, it's been a great marriage for something that looked, I mean, at least initially to me, it's like, whoa, that seems like an, uh, an interesting merger. I understand why it took place, but that was an interesting part where it could have really been a, a moment of this is where we grow from here or this is pretty much we're stagnating. Um I look oh, yeah. at other companies I'm not going to name them I look at other companies that made these acquisitions Jeremy and I talked about them on on uh Wednesday I, it it's a it's a struggle when they start to get too many bolted on to really capture that that culture and grow
2: Yeah Well, I mean one thing that that's different and and look I, we we learned a lot from watching other people fail uh at, at doing similar things right and and we capitalized some of our success in in the last 5 10 years based on those companies failing uh, mm-hmm. and, and we're, we're not going to sit here and, and be, you know, stagnant or happy with where we've gotten. We have a lot to deliver still. We have a lot of work to do to really deliver the full value of an integrated set of products. One thing that's different about us is we're not, we're not acquiring market share. Like I'm not, I'm not going and buying a bunch of products I already have just to get more customers. Right. Yeah. Look, that's not, that's not entirely like not a hundred percent accurate. Right. But for the most part, we're looking for synergies. We're looking to expand the overall breadth of the portfolio that delivers an integrated value to the customer. Um, and, and so I think that's where it's also a little bit, a little bit different.
1: Yeah. L- yeah. Land docs To I mean, you guys have kind of figured out with the model of OG Sys and land docs, how to segment out the market more, where I felt like you guys were playing more up market, especially on the land side right now, you really have your hooks kind of across the, um, the industry and there's nobody too small or too big, which is which is fascinating. I mean, I've had companies that are clients of yours show me quorum on Demand with a sense of pride. I've never seen people show an ERP system with some pride, and I think in his case, it's got the right analytics. It's not that expensive, and it works for him, so he's happy, right? And I'm like, that's interesting. People usually just shit on their ERP systems. So, uh, and this is a 60 well company, like I said, right? I mean, but yeah. I know you guys yeah. are, are going to have the concos yeah. and Exons and BPs out in out in Vegas too. Tim, I know you do have to run, but I got to get this. I'm going to stay on because I like this. You, you got to, Saroosh, you must have thought about this. Can you tell us a story about your fail, a team fail in a sales meeting, something like that?
2: Yeah, look. Uh, we would love to
0: hear you falling on your face at a client or something, or when you're doing pre-sales. Any good story would be great.
2: You know, I'm going to disappoint you guys. Uh, not because Not because I haven't failed a lot, but because... Uh, it's, it's kind of bland. Like what I realize now, uh, again, I was not a sales professional. I never had this aspiration to be good at sales. And so I've sort of learned as I have gone along, including my first ever demo when I was a pre solutions guy. Right. Which no one taught me how to demo. No one taught me what are like the fundamentals. No one taught me that, that you need to have a discovery call and hone in on areas. Right. So I, like, I would just show up and throw up and, and like hope something yeah, like okay. something stuck somewhere. Yeah. And so when I look back to some of those, like, I'm I'm just like embarrassed by, uh, how we used to go about delivering presentations, Tim, I know you got to go. Uh,
0: but I mean, the thing is it it's reinforced. Cause every once in a while that works. You yeah. Know? Right.
1: Right. Yeah. Right. So you, yeah, you, you once get once reinforced. Yeah. I
0: get reinforced. No, I don't need to prep. We don't need a discovery
1: call. I can do it without that. Yeah. You know? are anyway. the same yeah. as the other company in your base and you're good. Yeah. All right. Yeah.
0: Hey, uh, sorry. I've never, I never left one of these before, but you and Jeremy keep going. I got to run. You literally did meeting.
1: this with Jose's episode last week. So anyways, Tim, have a good meeting <laughs> and, and we'll, we'll talk to you soon. Hey. Um, yeah, yeah Seroosh, we'll, we'll grab another couple, couple minutes here. If you don't mind, I, I'm curious from your seat, um, where you see, your organization going at this point? You're kind of mid-career. You've, you've settled into a leadership role there. The company's gotten really big. Do you see this as Quorum will continue to grow, can continue to acquire, and does there come a point where it's, it's something like going public is a logical step? We don't see a lot of energy tech companies do that, but I think we could see Inveris take that route. You guys are sort of in the same ballpark from a revenue client-based standpoint. I'm curious from your seat, um, where where you think this whole thing is is heading.
2: Yeah, I mean again, I hope I hope not to disappoint you with my my answer here. Um it's man, like Jeremy, I have no earthly idea like where we could end up. Certainly going, you know, publics a possibility, certainly getting uh, acquired, certainly continuing to acquire, but like right now, our our like, you know, uh our, our focus is heads down, we just we just merged a bunch of companies and we have a lot of value to deliver. And so, you know, I think like for me, for me, especially in my, in my role in my seat, you know, I went from in 2020, gosh, was it 2020? Yeah. 2019, just doing the inside sales team, 2020, taking over the enterprise Mm -hmm. team and going through COVID and then 2021, really kind of getting comfortable with the enterprise team to then in 2022, uh, adding the entire you know Cerna a Cerna uh team to the to the mix and the set of products as well and putting all of that that bookings target revenue target right on on our shoulders for it's like I if I'm worried about what our end game is then I'm not focused on what we're doing yeah. right now. And so you know I think again, you know I know I know that you know Gene and, and Lindsay and Tyson and Paul are or you know along with Toma are having these these conversations and always sort of thinking about what the options are. For me, it's like, it, I don't mean to say that it's a waste of time, but it's it's a distraction, right? Like I have to yeah. focus on the, the job at hand and I've been blessed at Quorum in the sense of, you know, my my career has grown. I've gotten new opportunities every couple of years to continue to be challenged and expand what I'm doing. And and as long as I'm growing and as long as I'm being challenged in those ways, right? It's, it's fun. Like, yeah. Yeah.
1: I've been impressed with the with the people at Quorum, the the longtime folks. Jason Webster's and Spira are a client of mine right now, and he's a really impressive guy. I, I think I probably made some judgments about you guys just lumping you in with, well, they're just like another P2, right? They're going in the same direction. But you guys have done some things that I think P2 was, was unable to do in terms of let's centralize on a single platform, right? Let's kind of segment out the market in a few different ways. And I think that's kind of been part of your success. When I was at W, it was like, we hate Quorum. Quorum is the, the big competitor. We're going to go and kill those guys. And ultimately I was like, you know, there's a lot of similarities, starting with the midstream tech company, excuse me, branching into upstream, figuring out sort of how you fit in the market. Now they're at that point where they're going to start acquiring things and see where they fit. Right. But you guys reacted nicely to, hey, here's a new competitor. What do we have to do? What are the messages at speed, performance, cloud, enterprise, whatever it is. And very quickly, the narrative shifted from oh, maybe W's got the lead to you should check out quorum on demand. So kudos to you guys for sort of taking the, the bull by the horns and not being complacent, resting on your laurels. You know, I think that speaks to to leadership over there. And, and I'm curious what advice you'd have for for yourself. Like, like when you just started at a company like Quorum, like, what would you do differently? What do you say you did well? Like, like, let me give you an example. Mel Wilcoxon over at Inveris talked about this. And he said the number one thing he would go back and tell himself that he tells people now is ask for more help. Don't try to do it all yourself, especially at a big company. So I'm curious kind of what you would do if you were to look back and say, all right, 27 year old Seroosh, this is what you should do to make a mark at this company.
2: Yeah. uh, Can I, can I, uh, I'm going to answer that question, but can I I speak to kind of some of the comments you made a second ago around, around uh, not resting and not being complacent in in who we are today? Look, I think, uh, sorry, I'll, I'll just, I'll be quick on this, but I think it's, it's important to me and I'm passionate about it. It's, and I, and I keep going back to this parallel of sports where uh like you have to be driven to be the best version of yourself you compete with yourself every single day and if you're not being reflective you have no chance of getting it right i think or getting better uh it's funny to me when we have competitors out there whose entire mission in life is to be a competitor of one particular company i I, I can't stand it it's the wrong it's the wrong approach for your customers in my humble opinion Um, like, you know, and, and I think it's, it's, it's a little bit of a shame because like we should, we should all be driven to drive the most value for the oil and gas industry, period. That is our mission, all of us. And it's okay for all of us to have the same mission now. Um, you know, and if, and if we were to act that way, then when, when deals happen, right. Or like in sports, when games happen, when the game's over, you shake hands and say, Hey, good job. Yeah. Better luck next time. Or, or congrats, right. Whatever, whatever that is. And it's just so weird to me. Like, I'm only realizing this recently that like that doesn't really exist in our space. It's like, and I wish I really do kind of, sounds weird, I really kind of wish it did. Now, the other thing I'll say is, the last thing I want to say about this topic before I answer your other question is, man, uh, from a technology perspective, if anybody thought Quorum was going to kind of sit and watch, like just acquire and sit and watch what's happening and be happy with that, like these acquisitions have been so strategic and no one's necessarily aware of the fact that when we acquired Fielding in 2015, it was the first and only at the time built natively multi-tenant SaaS. What does multi-tenant SaaS mean? I won't spend a whole lot of time, but what it means is everybody's in the same version at the same time. You click a button as a vendor, as a software developer, you click a button, everybody gets that new feature at the same time. It's just how linkedin works it's how facebook works how yep. twitter works it's how your bank account web page works like everybody's on the same version at the same time you don't upgrade your bank account when the when the bank tells you hey i got a new feature on my website right right you just it's just there uh and so to pretend like everybody's got SaaS is not a thing we've been quiet we've been over <sighs> hey,
1: hang on a second
2: hang on yeah i'll go back to um uh yeah. Let me, let me, let me go back to one more thing before I answer your last question. Sure. Um, the, the, I want to, I want to talk about one thing. If if people thought that Quorum was going to sit here and be happy with sort of where we're at today, and we'll just keep sort of slowly evolving the existing products we have, and that was going to be good enough. Like that's not what we've been up to. What we've been up to is building the first true suite of multi-tenant SaaS products. What does that mean? It's, SaaS is just a word that everybody throws around now, but multi-tenant SaaS means that all of your customers are on the same version of software at the same time. I spend $1 of investment. I click a button, you know, as a software vendor, and, and that gets deployed to all of my customers at the same time, just like Facebook works, just like your LinkedIn, yeah, word, cargo, just like yeah. your, yeah, just like your bank account. When when a bank goes and updates a feature on their website and you log back into Chase the next day, you don't have to go call them and ask for an upgrade, Right. It's just deployed. They click a button. Now you can, you know, apply for a new savings account or whatever that feature is on their on their website. Our on demand suite is built in that way, and so it was very yeah. strategic. We acquired Fielding for that reason. Acquired Wellies for that reason. Acquired OG Sys for right. that reason. Again, we acquired Landox for that reason, and our KO's Dynamic Docs. And when you build on a modern stack like that while while others are talking about the future and sitting there competing, we're sitting here secretly building the only true multi-tenant SaaS suite built on a modern stack that talks to each other through modern APIs, where all of a sudden it's like, oh damn, didn't realize Quorum was actually investing in, in those ways. So anyway, that's that's the last thing I wanted to say about about that. Going back to your question. Uh, oh, I, advice, yeah, go ahead. No, no, no. Yeah, just what advice would I give myself Uh, when I, when I started, man, that's, that's, uh, that's an interesting, uh, like I I struck, like, I'm just so, I feel like I'm so blessed and pleased with how the opportunities that, that my mentors and leaders have given me as I have have progressed my career. Mm. And I think the thing is like the advice I'd give myself, I guess, is like, just show up every time you're supposed to show up, show up, like put the effort into it. Don't, you know, if you're not that comfortable with it, perfect. Like the things that you do that you're not comfortable with and you challenge yourself to do them are how you grow. Like those are the moments that you grow. And so I think, you know, I think for the most part, I was really lucky that, that I was trusted to be given opportunities that were challenging. Right. But I, I see in other people's careers where maybe they're not, but they're also not, they're kind of shying away from it when it's challenging. And again, I think like take on the most difficult thing that might be out there. And and then when you shine in that moment, not only do you grow, but it's but it's recognized. Um, so I don't know. I don't know if that's good advice or not. I think the the world has changed too, right? Like what the advice I give somebody today versus myself 20 years ago is is probably entirely different. Um for, for lots well, of reasons.
1: I, I sprung that on you, but I was I was just sort of curious. And I, I think your answer is, is logical, right? But be there, right? Make make yourself undeniable, make yourself visible, uh, contribute where you can, don't make it about yourself. Um, The final question I had before we let you go, and this is back on the ERP side of things. So uh, we're just getting to know each other, but my background actually, before I started working at Bolo, I guess competing with you guys on the upstream side, 2008, 9, 10, those sorts of days, I was in SaaS. Uh, I actually sold cloud software going as far back as 2005, no servers, like very much understood where the market was heading. Then I went to Bolo and it was like, not only do you get this horrible UX looking software, you also have to pay a million dollars to do your data conversion. So you mentioned like the pushing one button to be able to do an upgrade. Awesome. Obviously, I understand that. It makes sense. You do it on your iPhone. Everything is is great. How do we get there for data conversions, right? That initial implementation, because it still seems like for the most part, these are massively time consuming, a kind of hard fought process to go through and do all of the data cleansing conversion to get it in. How do you make the easy button for that?
2: Yeah, uh, man, it, it, I think some of it's there, uh, Jeremy. Honestly, what I, what I mean by that is, look, garbage in, garbage out. Or, sorry, garbage out, garbage in. Like that's always yes. going to be the case. Wherever your data is coming from, if it's terrible, okay, we got to spend some time. Like you got to spend some time getting it to a state that you feel good about. That's always going to be the issue that has data integrity forevermore. Uh, and then people will mess that up again and and you'll have to go back and do data cleansing. Okay. But the question you're asking is what what we're actually talking about is back then, 2008, 9, 10, 11, yeah. 12, it was you bought $1 of software and you paid $5 of services Absolutely. to go implement that software, do a data conversion, right? And that ratio is unacceptable. It's Completely. unacceptable in this, in this market um and it's unacceptable in general and so i think uh, listen tools like landox and OG Sys on demand right are again we we are calling those products now on demand land on demand accounting yeah. they actually have like just just built in front end spreadsheet importers right so so customers can hit the button export the spreadsheet right here's how the format you got to put your data in hit a button upload the the data back into the into the system right? And where there's data errors, it'll tell you it's very clean, wow. right? So, so customers can be self-serve. Not all customers want to be self-serve, but the days of that one to five ratio are gone. You know, now we're talking about, you know, you talked about the 60 wall customer. It's like they, they, they pay basically like a, a month of their convert, a month of their subscription cost equivalent to getting onboarded. Right. That's huge. So it's like, it's, it's pennies. It's like a one uh, uh, ratio. And that's the way it, it needs to be. Now, look, that has to scale, right? The, the larger the company, the larger the ERP data, the more history, the more complex the asset, the more time it's going to take to get all the data ready. Um, but the beauty of, of making these tools self-serve is that we're now, we're now letting our partner network jump in and do that. We need to be a software company. We need yeah. to drive our software forward. We need to enable partners to do those value-added services for our customers. And, and not to say that we don't and that we don't want to, but both is a really healthy you know if you can do both where you're enabling customer partners to go deliver their services for customers right um you're 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 in a much better state so I don't know those are those are my quick thoughts
1: love it Saroosh, thank you for coming on today my man where can where can people find you uh online how can they reach out to you if they want to get a hold of you
2: Uh, yeah. Yeah. Look, uh, LinkedIn, Sarush Sehun. There's not many of us. Uh, sure. (laughs) Spelling is, is not that hard. Uh, in the quorum quorum email is, is Sehun at quorumsoftware.com. So, uh, feel free to reach out. Love to connect with people. Jeremy, I really, really appreciate you and Tim and the time. Uh, look forward to getting to know you guys even better.
1: Yeah, it's going to be fun in uh, in Vegas, man. Appreciate you guys doing it out there selfishly, but also just to, to spend time, see some of these new products and uh, dive in further. But you take care, brother.
2: Thank you. See you.